God, those communists are amazing. Welcome back to the Turnless Podcast, everybody. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Sterling, he, him as well. And Daniel from the 262 Talks Podcast again. How you doing, Daniel? I'm here, you know. <laughs> being, uh, you, you guys caught me on the day off that I had from being a slave for Amazon, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, man. Well, it's good to have you back regardless. And uh, Daniel's pronouns are, he, pronouns are he, him as well. Uh, so again, welcome back, Daniel. And tonight we're going to talk about Che Guevara. So last week, obviously, we talked about the Cuban Revolution. And, uh, you know, we invited Daniel back because this was his idea. I don't know if you guys remember, but on the episode about uh, the liberalism and fascism connection, Daniel joined us for that and mentioned how he was uh, particularly interested in the Cuban Revolution and Shea and Fidel. And so I started writing up notes on it. And unfortunately, Daniel couldn't make it for last week's episode, but he's here with us now. And so I started writing up just to fill in the gap that I had left last week about Shea Guevara having not talked about him really much at all in the Cuban Revolution episode. And then after finding so much info and, you know, so many documentaries and interviews and everything, uh, I ended up just making this entire episode about Shea. So he's pretty much the only thing we're going to talk about tonight. And then hopefully next week we can do an episode where we get into more tying him into the Cuban Revolution and his role in it. And then maybe addressing just some wrap up about the Cuban Revolution, because I would like to talk more about the aftermath of the revolution. Uh, you know, things like the missile, the Cuban Missile Crisis in those 13 days. And then uh, I guess just bringing it forward maybe into like the more modern day of Cuban politics. But anyway, that's all for next week. So let's tonight get into Shea. So to start off, Shea will talk about his early life. Uh, he was born, in May, born May 14th, 1928, and his name was Ernesto Guevara de la Serna. And his parents were Ernesto Guevara Lynch and Celia de la Serna. And he was born in Rosario, Argentina. He was the oldest of five children, and his family was very well off. Uh, which just makes Shea even better. The fact that he decided to abandon his like well-off lifestyle and become a revolutionary for the poor. So early on in life, Ernestito, as he was called then, developed, quote, an affinity for the poor. Uh, there were several interviews I found with childhood friends of Shea's that all said he always hung out with everyone and treated the poor kids the same as the wealthy ones. In these interviews, they also said that Shea was always dirty, as in he, would, he wouldn't shower often enough. So they called him chancho, which means pig in Spanish. And his one friend said that they called his shirt, quote, the weekly shirt, because he only changed it that often. And he said that Shea actually kind of liked the nickname and his reputation, and he kind of leaned into it. Like, he just liked being mm -hmm. dirty. Yeah. He, he specifically did that to break some of the, because, um, like, in Argentina, there's, like, all of these uh, standards for people who live in the, like, aristocracy or, like, the upper classes and shit. And since his mm -hmm. name was like of a good Argentinian vintage and shit like that. And he came from these families that had like uh, famous generals and uh, landowners and shit like that. Doing that, like he did that specifically because he liked the attention that he got. Like he, like this is like a stupid anecdote, but him and one of his friends bought a bunch of shoes on wholesale from like an auction and some shit because they were going to sell a bunch of them. But it turned out they got just like a shit ton of like mis mismatched, mismatched shoes. And then just Che decided just to wear a bunch of mis mismatched shoes all the time. Like, just for no reason. Which would be, like, hip to do now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. What did you have, Sterling? Um, what did I have? Something about him Don't being remember. dirty. Oh, I was just going to say, on, on the t-shirt thing, on him wearing the same t-shirt for a week, it's funny because I definitely have friends who will also wear the same t-shirt uh, for a week, and it be a actual Che Guevara shirt. So there's a little meta pun that they probably <laughs> don't even don't even realize that they're uh, doing there. That's actually really funny. 
Um, so yeah, he liked being dirty and he liked hanging out with the poor people and treated them just the same. And now I will make a note here. We're going to talk about it at the very end. I have a whole section on accusations of uh, Shay being racist or homophobic because that is like the common thing that you hear nowadays. Like I remember it used to be like in the nineties, it was cool to wear a Shea Guevara shirt. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people didn't even really know much about him except that he was a revolutionary character. And then yeah. now it seems like we flipped in the culture where if you idolize Shea or just think he's the cool guy or, or like, God forbid, have a Shea shirt, some asshole like Reddit guy is going to be, well, actually, uh, Shea Guevara was like a dictator and a murderer and a homophobic racist or whatever. And none of that is true at all. But yeah, it doesn't a matter. Because that is, what? Exactly. I mean, we'll get into it. But like <laughs> the only reason I even mentioned it now is to kind of differentiate. There is one incident uh, where he made like a racist comment. Um, in his writing in the motorcycle diaries. Um, so while I'm, you know, taking pains to note that he was hanging out with all the poor kids and didn't discriminate against anybody because of status, you know, financially, um, it seems like in his younger life, he did hold some racist views, but then later on, uh, fixed those. Like he learned and he just stopped. He became an anti vehement anti racist. So, but again, we'll get into that. There's a whole section on it at the very end. Um, okay. So after him being dirty, Uh, His friends also said that he was more advanced than the other kids in his classes, as far as like his intelligence. Uh, So John Lee Anderson wrote a biography called Che Guevara, A Revolutionary Life. And in it, he says that Che was always searching for some kind of meaning to life. And as we'll get into later, it seems like for him, that meaning and purpose was to be a revolutionary. Both this biographer and those friends in interviews said that he was reading serious authors that were far beyond what the others his age were reading. And they mentioned Gandhi, Steinbeck, and Faulkner, among others. One of those others was Mussolini, unfortunately. But, oh, God. I mean, it, it doesn't mean he, he actually, likes Mussolini. He just read him. He yeah, even read yeah. Mein Kampf at one point. Yeah. Um, he, he got this, like, he got this habit of reading all of his literature just because he was afflicted by, um, uh, by asthma for his entire life to the mm-hmm. point where it became such an issue that um, he would be bedridden for days and his family would move around to, to different cities that would hopefully be able to help him with his uh, asthma affliction. So that's why he actually got into this habit of uh, reading all of these books and stuff that he ended up holding on for the rest of his life. Yeah, they did mention that a lot, that he had like some terrible asthma. And that's actually, they mentioned that he pushed himself really hard, like athletically, to try and counteract that. Would you have stolen? I think I was just scratching my head. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Okay, so... Um, growing up in a family with leftist leanings, Guevara was also introduced to a wide spectrum of political perspectives, even as a boy. His father, a staunch supporter of Republicans from the Spanish Civil War, often hosted many veterans from the conflict in the Guevara home. From an article in Time magazine called Argentina, Shea's Red Mother, uh, this was published July 14, 1961, and it says, quote, when her asthmatic little boy Ernesto Guevara grew up to be at age 33, the Marxist mastermind of Fidel Castro's government in Havana, Celia de, de Lucerna de Guevara was as proud as a mama could be, particularly a communist mama. Mm. At home in Argentina, Celia has been an all-wool communist herself, but hampered by nice. individualistic tendencies. I know, right? She, they make her sound so awesome, unintentionally. Yeah, they, so they try to make way, her sound like this. Way more woke than Fidel's mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, she often ate with a pistol at the table, and before she separated from Ernesto Sr., sometimes used the weapon to threaten her husband, whose policies were only oh parlor pink. I know, right? <laughs> I love this woman. <laughs> Militant I feminist. Mean, I mean, Ernesto Guevara Lynch was kind of a piece of shit, but like, you know. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't have much about him, just like the the line I mentioned in the beginning, but he just he constantly cheated on Che's mom. So that's uh, why I probably that that's probably why. <laughs> yeah, not great. Uh so somehow the leaders of the Argentine communism never got around to giving Celia the leading role in the movement she felt she deserved. And some more from that article. Uh this was from a section called Bayonets in Recife. Things are a lot livelier for Celia these days. As her son Shay's Red Star rises higher over Cuba, Mother Guevara has gone into quite an or- orbit of her own. She buzzed off to decorate a conference of leftist females in Santiago, Chile, in November 1959, returned to whip up enthusiasm for an Argentine branch of Castro's 26th of July movement. She travels to Cuba at least once a year to see her boy. Lately, Celia has capped her career by becoming a kind of Marxist typhoid Mary, spreading violence wherever she goes in Latin America. Again, they're trying to make her sound so bad, and they just make her sound awesome. Attending a conference of communist women in Brazil, she spent most of her time in anti-Yankee harangues over TV and radio, made splashy headlines during her stay in Rio de Janeiro. She toured Sao Paulo, swung north to Recife, where her presence set off a student riot that ended only when Brazilian President Janio Quadros sent in troops and tanks. And yeah, so basically they're just outlining how she takes part in all these socialist revolutionary movements, you know, in Brazil and elsewhere. And it seems like Shay took after his mother. And like I said, they yeah. just try to make her seem like this evil villain and just make her sound badass. This, is, this next piece I have is from an article called Shay, an icon, with a question mark. And the subhead is The Life and Ideas of Ernesto Guevara. And this is by Alan Woods and was published in 2007. And they say, quote, His humanitarian instincts first inclined him to the field of medicine. He obtained a medical degree. His specialty was dermatology, and he was particularly interested in leprosy. At this time, his horizons were no wider than those of most other middle-class young men. To work hard, get, get a degree in medicine, get a good job, maybe do original research into medical science and advance human knowledge by some amazing discovery. About this period in his life, he wrote, quote, When I began to study medicine, most of the concepts I now have as a revolutionary were then absent from my warehouse of ideals. I wanted to be successful as everyone does. I used to dream of being a famous researcher, of working tirelessly to achieve something that could decidedly be placed at the service of mankind, but which was at that time all about personal triumph. I was, as we all were, a product of my environment. Uh, From that same article, like most young people, Ernesto loved to travel. He was seized by what the Germans called wanderlust. He wrote, quote, I now know by an unbelievable coincidence of fate that I am destined to travel. Just how far he was to travel and in what direction he would go was as yet a sealed book to him. No doubt he would have made a conscientious physician, but the wanderlust got the better of him. He took to the road and did not return to Argentina for many years. His adventurous nature induced him to set out on a long journey, traveling throughout South America on a motorbike. And this is where the Motorcycle Diaries comes. That's like his famous book. He traveled around and then, you know, logged all his uh, experiences and thoughts. And then out of that came the book. Uh, So let's see. Just going on more with his younger life here. Um, This is quoting from Wikipedia. In 1948, Guevara entered the University of Buenos Aires to study medicine. His, quote, hunger to explore the world led him to intersperse his collegiate pursuits with two long introspective journeys that fundamentally changed the way he viewed himself and the contemporary economic conditions in Latin America. The first expedition in 1950 was a 4,500 kilometer uh, or 2,800 miles solo trip through the rural provinces of northern Argentina on a bicycle on which he installed small engines. This was followed in 1951 by a nine-month, 5,000-mile continental motorcycle trek through part of South America. For the latter, he took a year off from his studies to embark with his friend Alberto Granado, with the final goal of spending a few weeks volunteering at the San Pablo leper colony in Peru 
on the banks of the Amazon River. In Chile, Guevara defended himself, enraged by the working conditions of the miners in Anacondas. <laughs> the Spanish is going to like screw me up here a couple times. Uh, in Anacondas, Chuquicamata copper mine, and moved by his overnight encounter in the Atacama Desert with a persecuted communist couple who did not even own a blanket, describing, him, describing them as, quote, the shivering flesh and blood victims of capitalist exploitation. Additionally, on the way to Machu Picchu, high in the Andes, he was struck by the crushing poverty of the remote rural areas where, his peasant, farmer, where peasant farmers worked small plots of land owned by wealthy landlords. Later on his journey, Guevara was especially impressed by the camaraderie among those living in a leper colony, stating, quote, the highest forms of human solidarity and loyalty arise among such lonely and desperate people. Guevara used notes taken during his trip to write an account titled The Motorcycle Diaries, which later became a New York Times bestseller and was adapted into a 2004 award-winning film of the same name. So the journey took Guevara through Argentina, Chile, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, Panama, and Miami, Florida for 20 days before returning home to Buenos Aires. By the end of the trip, he came to view Latin America not as a collection of separate nations, but as a single entity requiring a continent-wide liberation strategy. His conception of a borderless, united Hispanic America sharing a common Latino heritage was a theme that recurred prominently during his later revolutionary activities. Upon returning to Argentina, he completed his studies and received his medical degree in June 1953, making him officially Dr. Ernesto Guevara. Do you have something, Sterling? Okay, this is way off topic. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that that's great and I hate to derail for a second for but it. I randomly I randomly look at this post by Red Marksman who is a big fan of the or big uh, uh friend of the pod. Yeah, we're big fans of him. He posted yeah, he posted the Baskin Robbins logo as and basically it's it's a joke, you know, saying it's 1312 mm -hmm. and let me just post it for you guys oh, to I look saw at that today. Now, I love it. I will, yeah, I'll never unsee yeah. that. And now I'm like, yo, I'm going to get a Baskin Robbins tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Just post it in the waiting room. Is that not literally fucking 13 I mean, it looks like it might be intentional. I don't know. I'll put it this way. It's really... If there were a right-wing company, like it was the MyPillow guy, and he had like a logo that looked similarly close enough to being like a swastika or some kind of anti-Semitic symbol, yeah. I would believe it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's this one... Yeah, I mean, that is... There's this one company that's really popular in the South. Um, fuck, I don't remember what they're called, but literally their logo looks like an SS symbol. Ooh. And, like, you see, like, blonde, like, white girls down in Florida, like, wearing it just everywhere. And they're, like, low-key just wearing fucking SS symbol everywhere. Yikes. Oh, no. It's called. I'll have to, like, text one of my <laughs> friends that lives down there still. And, like, if they respond, I'll let you know. But, like, it's, it's fucking crazy. It's ridiculous. Um, okay. So getting back to uh Shea so, Guevara yeah. after becoming yeah. a doctor. I wanna I wanna see some motherfuckers get Baskin Robin tattoos and tag <laughs> us on fucking Twitter. <laughs> Let's do this. Free t shirt to anyone who gets a Baskin Robin Yeah, actually tattoo. I would I would back that up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> see, this is all stuff that would I would that would like shift and put in the cold open if uh we were still editing. But we're not, Sorry. so it's sticking around. No, it's all good. <laughs> Yeah, so getting back to Shea, Guevara later remarked that through his travels in Latin America, he came in, quote, close contact with poverty, hunger, and disease, along with, quote, the inability to treat a child because of lack of money, and, quote, stupefaction provoked by the continual hunger and punishment that leads a father to accept the loss of a son as an unimportant accident. 
Guevara cited these experiences as convincing him that in order to help these people, he needed to leave the realm of medicine and consider the political arena of armed struggle. So badass. So the link between medicine and his political ideals emerged in a speech that he delivered in the San Pablo Leprosarium in Peru on the occasion of his 24th birthday. He said, quote, Although we're too insignificant to be spokesmen for such a noble cause, we believe, and this journey has only served to confirm this belief, that the division of America into unstable and illusory nations is a complete fiction. We are one single mestizo race with, a remarkable ethnographical, with remarkable ethnographical similarities, from Mexico down to the Magellan Straits. And so, in an attempt to break from all narrow-minded provincialism, I propose a toast to Peru and to a united America. And this is from the Motorcycle Diaries as well. On July 7, 1953, Guevara set out again, this time to Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador. On the 10th of November, before leaving for Guatemala, Guevara sent an update to his Aunt Beatrice from San Jose, Costa Rica. In the letter, Guevara speaks of traversing the dominion of the United Fruit Company, a journey which convinced him that the company's capitalist system was a terrible one. This, the, this affirmed indignation carried the more aggressive tone he adopted in order to frighten his more conservative relatives, and ends with Guevara swearing on an image of the then recently deceased Joseph Stalin, not to rest until these, quote, octopuses have been vanquished. Hey! I know, right? Later that Based. month, Guevara, arrived in, he arrived, Guevara arrived in Guatemala, where President Jacobo Arbenz Guzman headed a democratically elected government that, through land reform and other initiatives, was attempting to end Latifundia system. To accomplish this, President Arbenz had, had enacted a major land reform program, where all unco- un- uncultivated portions of large land holdings were to be expropriated and redistributed to the landless peasants. The biggest landowner, and the one most affected by the reforms, was the United Fruit Company, from which the Arbenz government had already taken more than 20, 225,000 acres of uncultivated land. Damn. Pleased with the road the nation was heading down, Guevara decided to settle down in Guatemala so as, to perf- so as to, quote, perfect himself and accomplish whatever may be necessary in order to become a true revolutionary. When they say uncultivated, they mean like it's not being used for agriculture at the moment. It's just like. Yeah, and I mean, that could either be for like the cynical reason that they just want to buy up the land because it's cheap and they don't want anybody else to use it or that they're trying to like rotate their fields because you can't from what I the little I understand about farming is that you can't plant on the same field over and over again because you'll just like Mm -hmm. sap the soil of any nutrients. So you have to like rotate it around. So if we wanted to be generous to the United Fruit Company, which why? But if we wanted to, yeah, we could no, say that no. maybe they were doing that for that reason. But it's probably more likely that they just were vast property owners and that they just bought up all the land they could because it's cheap. Yeah, and then turn it into uh, a company town. Like, they buy up all the land that people are already living on. And then, like, oh, you can stay here. You just now are our slaves. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's uh, one of the things that I, I enjoy uh, looking into about Che's time in Guatemala is because Che, up until that point, had never actually fully declared himself as any kind of aligned person. Like, he never declared himself to be a conservative, a liberal, a socialist, communist, not anything. He referred to himself a lot as a political sniper because he would often say very controversial things to rouse debates and stuff like that. He very much was a pan-Americanist because he did believe in a united South America and stuff. but. And since even though he did refer to Stalin in some of his uh, letters to his aunt Beatrice, uh, Beatrice, it was in Guatemala that he finally did like confirm with himself and finally committed to the idea of him being a communist. It was one we of those things that where, moment, yeah, yeah, it's like it and it's incredibly it, to me it's interesting because it's like 
he went from just being a regular like uh upper middle class fa- uh family person who was going to who looked like he was going to have a successful life as just another bourgeois doctor you know just whatever and then it's like it it follows in his character of being so stubborn and everything like that and where he needs to look at all of the facts before he decides to actually commit to something um that like him actually being in a budding socialist revolution in Guatemala that eventually would get stomped out you know is just i don't know i to, I always found that very interesting because it's like people like to assume like, oh, Che was always just like a communist when throughout his life, he had never really specifically aligned with any political ideology until he got to Guatemala. Then he like finally Mm -hmm. solidified and like confirmed with everyone that he was a Marxist. Yeah, no, it's actually really interesting. And the next section I have here kind of gets into that a little bit, but it is funny that you that you put it that way, because it's like. I think there have been a lot of figures who may not have been explicitly communist and they just, you know, felt a passion for fighting for working people and poor people like any of the downtrodden, marginalized people. And it's like, if you do that long enough, that's eventually going to lead you to Marxism. If you're if you're being honest, like if you actually study history and you study like events and, you know, revolutions and things like this, it's eventually going to lead you in that direction. It really can't help but happen that way. Um, So getting to Guatemala in Guatemala City, Guevara sought out Hilda uh, Acosta a Peruvian economist who was well-connected politically as a member of the left-leaning Alianza Popular Revolutionaria... Amer- Sorry. The American Popular Revolutionary Alliance, but in Spanish. She introduced Guevara to a number of high-level officials in the Arbenz government. Guevara then est- established contact with a group of Cuban exiles linked to Fidel Castro through the 26th of July 1953 attack on the Moncada barracks in Santiago de Cuba. During this period, he acquired his famous nickname, Due to his frequent use of the Argentine filler symbol Shea, a multi-purpose discourse marker like the symbol A in Canadian English. So that's where his na- name comes from. Like, I guess Shea is in Argentinian just like saying A in Canada or like, uh, in American. And that's Shea's nickname is, uh, huh. <laughs> I know, hey. right? <laughs> it, was, it was quite literally like the Cubans kind of clowning him, but then he mm-hmm. just kind of embraced it. Like the way he embraced Chancho. Like, yeah. He, he just did not give that much of a fuck. Like he literally, that's, basically had a nickname that was just like, eh, like. That's, that's, <laughs> yo, that's my man. Oh, what the fuck was it? <laughs> um, let's see. During his time in Guatemala, Guevara was helped by other Central American exiles, one of whom, Helena de Holst, provided him with food and lodging. And she discussed her travels to study Marxism in Russia and China, and to whom Guevara de- dedicated a poem, Invitation al Camino. In May 1954, a shipment of infantry and light artillery weapons was dispatched from the communist Czechoslovakia for the Arbenz government and arrived in Puerto Barrios. As a result, the United States government, which since 1953 had been tasked by President Eisenhower to remove Arbenz from power and the multifaceted CIA operation codenamed PB Success, responded by saturating Guatemala with anti-Arbenz propaganda through radio and dropped leaflets and began bombing raids using unmarked airplanes. The United States also sponsored a force of several hundred Guatemalan refugees and mercenaries who were headed by Castillo Armas to help remove the Arbenz government. On June 27th, Arbenz decided to resign. This allowed Armas and his CIA-assisted forces to march into Guatemala City and establish a military junta, which elected Armas as president on July 7th. Subsequently, the Armas regime then consolidated power by rounding up and executing suspected communists, 
while crushing the previously flourishing labor unions and reversing the previous agrarian reforms. Kovada himself was eager to fight on behalf of Arbenz and joined an armed militia organized by the Communist Youth for that purpose. The Communist Youth for that purpose. But frustrated with the group's inaction, he soon returned to medical duties. Following the coup, he again volunteered to fight, but soon after, Arbenz took refuge in the Mexican embassy and told his foreign supporters to leave the country. Kovada's repeated calls to resist were noted by supporters of the coup, and he was marked for murder. After Hilda Gadeo was arrested, Guevara sought protection inside the Argentine consulate, where he remained until he received a safe conduct pass some weeks later and made his way to Mexico. The overthrow of the Arbenz regime and establishment of the right-wing Armas dictatorship cemented Guevara's views of the United States as an imperialist power that opposed and attempted to destroy any government that sought to redress the socioeconomic inequality endemic to Latin America and other developing countries. In speaking about the coup, Guevara stated, quote, the last Latin American revolutionary democracy, that of Jacobo Arbenz, failed as a result of the cold, premeditated aggression carried out by the United States. Its visible head was the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, a man who, through a rare coincidence, was also a stockholder and attorney for the United Fruit Company. <laughs> uh, I know, right? Something that's funny, too, is that Arbenz actually had reached out to the UN, like the UN Security Council, to intervene on behalf of... Um, Guatemala because this was just a un an unwarranted act of aggression from mm-hmm. the United States and from these you know um because a lot of these airstrikes were coming from nations like Nicaragua and stuff like that so in every single term this was a perfect uh, situation for the UN Sec- Security Council to intervene but because since the U.S. has every nation's balls in a vice it literally did not even pass the vote of a majority vote to even send a investig investigate uh, my god an investigatory team out to see what they were talking about. Yeah. So literally Arbenz was like, hey, we're just minding our business trying to, you know, be democratically elected and doing our thing. And then the UN said, ah Yeah. By the way, that also happened with Vietnam. I remember it was uh, I think it was Ho Chi Minh who wrote to whoever was president at the time into the UN, like, you know, the French are obviously doing this like colonial shit to us. They're oppressing us. Like, can you guys come help us? Like that's literally your function is to come help these nations that are being oppressed by other nations. And yeah, they just function. ignored it. Not and their then, function at all, actually. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and then we'll see later on in, in here oh. that Che Guevara asked, actually, um, he addressed the UN about apartheid in South Africa and he was condemning that. And he's like, why isn't the UN doing anything? And it's like, that's, we, like, no, no, we, like, we are doing something. We're doing apartheid. <laughs> yeah. I think it's funny, too, because he even actually spoke about American racism, too. Yeah, like I have that in here. Um, African-Americans in the South saying, like, yeah, in Cuba, we don't have this. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. He's just like, you guys criticize us, but then you guys have certain bathrooms that people have to use. Like, <laughs> Yeah, there's some pretty good anti-racist quotes of his later on. Yeah. Um, but so just wrapping up the Guatemala thing, Guevara's conviction strengthened that Marxism, achieved through armed struggle and defended by an armed populace, was the only way to rectify such conditions. Gadea wrote later, quote, It was Guatemala which finally convinced him of the necessity for armed struggle and for taking the initiative against imperialism. By the time he left, he was sure of this. Hell yeah. Uh, okay, so Greg Grandin is a professor of Latin American history at New York University. And he wrote a a book called Empire's Workshop, Latin America, the United States, and the Rise of New Imperialism. And here's an excerpt from an interview he did where he talked about Shea. 
And here he explains how he went from Guatemala to ending up involved with Fidel Castro and the 26th of July movement. And so Grandin says here, Well, it's an interesting story. What makes Shea so iconic is that his life embodies the revolutionary century of Latin America. Viewers may be aware of Shea's motorcycle diary trip, where he toured around Latin America, and through that he developed a consciousness, a pan-American consciousness. Well, right after that trip, he wound up in Guatemala, which was undergoing a profound democratic revolution between 1944 and 54. And Guatemala was one of the most ambitious social, social democratic revolutions that emerged throughout Latin America after World War II. And what's important about Guatemala is that by 1948, 1950-ish, most democratic revolutions in Latin America had been rolled back. Or there was a wave of reaction throughout the, through, throughout the continent. But in Guatemala, the revolution actually deepened. And Shea spent 1953 in Guatemala, and he lived through that counter-revolution. This was the United States' first CIA orchestrated coup in Latin America against Jacobo Arbenz defending the interests of the United Fruit Company. And here, the interviewer Amy Goodman notes, so first the US CIA had overthrown Iran in 1953. Then trying to use the same model goes, and then Grandin interrupts her and he says, well, it was actually even more ambitious. Iran was a pretty fast operation, a couple of weeks. Guatemala was the most extensive and ambitious CIA operation to date. It utilized every aspect of U.S. power, not just military and economic and political, but a whole broad array of psychological destabilization campaigns. There was quite a bit of penetration of the Guatemalan press as well beforehand to prepare the way for the coup as well. It became the model for other coups in which the United States would destabilize the civil society organizations. And again, Amy Goodman, the interviewer, points out John Foster Dulles was the head of the State Department at the time. Formerly, he was the corporate lawyer for United Fruit. And Granite says, right. And then Goodman says, on behalf of whom Guatemala was overthrown. So just like, again, bringing to the front all the obvious conflicts of interest there. And uh, Grandin says, yes, the United Fruit Company had some land expropriated, and the United States was concerned about the illegalization of the Communist Party. And what's important in terms of Shea is that he witnessed this. In Guatemala, he developed a more revolutionary consciousness. He worked as a socially committed doctor, administering to the country's poor in a clinic, and he saw the overthrow of what was the most, the longest-lasting post-war de democracy in Latin America firsthand. He had to flee. He took asylum in the Argentine embassy, spent a few months in the embassy, and it was there that he met a number of future revolutionaries, Guatemalan new left-armed revolutionaries. And he then managed to flee and receive exile in Mexico, and that's where he met Fidel Castro and joined the Cuban Revolution and went on to make history. But Guatemala had a deep impact, impact on him. He would go on to justify the closing down, the suppressing of civil, li civil liberties in Cuba, and the radicalization of the revolution in Cuba by saying that Cuba will not be another Guatemala. In many ways, Guatemala, much more than Cuba, diplomatic historians love to focus on Cuba. They think that the Cold War began and ended in Cuba, but it was really Guatemala that was much more of a turning point, not just in Shea's life, but for a whole generation of Latin American reformists and nationalists and Democrats. It led to a deep radicalization and a sense that democracy and reform would not come about through an alliance with the national bourgeoisie and national progressive capitalist class. It was witnessing the downfall of the Guatemalan democracy, in which elites did ally with CS, CIA, and the U.S., that led to a much more radical understanding of how to bring about social change in the Cuban Revolution. So, yeah. Just more so, reinforcing that. Yeah, sorry, Daniel. Um, something that, I don't remember the exact quote, but they actively criticized the fact that the Audubon's government allowed uh, the United Fruits like newspapers and media outlets to continue printing as the CIA was dropping these propagandic uh, leaflets and stuff like that. Like mm -hmm. he was actively allowing the co the company that basically owned his nation to continue using their own propaganda, like just fully legalized, like 
And Jay was like, dude, they, he's literally hurting himself by continuing to let them do that. Yeah. It's just like, and like, I'm not one for like stepping on like certain civil liberties, like speech and stuff like that. But when you know for a fact that the world's largest superpower is coming for, for you, and you know for a fact that they're sending the CIA in to come get you, I think lifting some of those uh, rights, like, I don't know, the United Fruit Company being able to print shit, I think you can yeah. uh, have a justifiable reason to revoke those rights. Yeah, I mean, the takeaway from that last couple of paragraphs that I read is just that Che Guevara saw firsthand and became radicalized by seeing liberals side with out-and-out fascists, like a military coup dictatorship and the businesses obviously were taking part in it and you know prompting the entire thing to begin with but even just the liberals and the you know the higher-ups in government that don't feel a particular affinity for communism end up siding with the fascists because that's what keeps them in a comfortable position and that's what they always do um let's see so more from the john lee anderson biography and he writes, Shea described being a gorilla as the highest form of human life, someone willing to die for an ideal. In his case, for the cause of Marxism-Leninism, the solution to humanity's ills, and the only way to turn around the world order from one dominated by Yankee capitalism. Um, so this is an excerpt from Shea's address to the United Nations on December 11th, 1964. Um, he says, The bestiality of imperialism, a bestiality that knows no limits, that has no national frontiers, the bestiality of Hitler's armies is like the North American bestiality, like that of the Belgian paratroopers and that of French imperialists in Algeria, where it is the very essence of imperialism to turn men into wild, bloodthirsty animals determined to slaughter, kill, murder, and destroy the last vestige of the image of the revolutionary or the partisan in any regime that they crush under their boots because it fights for freedom. The statue of Lumumba, destroyed today but rebuilt tomorrow, reminds us of this tragic story of this martyr of the world revolution and make sure that we will never trust imperialism in no way at all, not an iota. Um, a few days after his address to the UN, a group of journalists interviewed Shea at the Cuban mission in New York. And one area of the discussion dealt with his own revolutionary past and his analysis of the Cuban guerrilla struggle. And interviewer Chris Koch says, you are Argentinian by birth, and rather than make a revolution in the Argentine, you went out and, as I understand it, traveled and stayed in several countries before coming into conjunction with Fidel Castro in Mexico. I would like to ask you how you look back upon this and see it as some kind of lucky, lucky juncture or that somehow you were searching until the revolutionary situation coalesced or, and then Shea says, it seems to be a question to be answered after three or four drinks in a more intimate atmosphere. In general, we could say there are some moments in our revolution that are things completely mad. Uh, said, sorry, some moments in our revolution that things are completely mad, crazy. The attack against the Moncada barracks, the expedition of the Granma, the struggle with the handful of men that remained, the defense against the last great attack by the dictatorship in Sierra Maestra, the invasion of the province of Las Villas, the seizure of principal towns. If you analyze each one of those things, you will reach the conclusion that there was something mad in, in the middle, something crazy. And as all of them as a chain led to the seizure of power, you may have to reach a conclusion that in order to seize power, you have to be a little crazy. He literally told Castro to his face when Castro like asked him to join his revolution that he was crazy. But then he ended up joining him anyway. Like, like Shay said that Castro was crazy, or said Shay said that he himself was crazy. No, he literally told Castro to his face that he was crazy because he literally had a pregnant wife. Hilda was pregnant by the time when he decided to join Castro's, uh, you know, 
uh, fight in Mexico at the time. Mm-hmm. And like when he had met, because he originally met Raul first, mm-hmm. and Raul introduced him to Fidel. And after like an entire night of them all like just having like a dinner and shit like that, and him listening to Castro and everything, he ended up talking to him like a few more times. And then when Castro asked him to join him, it was just like, you are crazy. But yeah, I'm gonna come. Like, like literally, it was just like, yeah, you're insane for thinking this is gonna work. But sure, I'll go. <laughs> Crazy like a fox. Um. Okay. So let's see. I have a section here about terrible joke. What's up, <laughs> terrible pun. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. I'll cut that. <laughs> Maybe. Um. So reading about Shea, I found a good amount of stuff about his time in Africa, helping burgeoning revolutions there. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but there's some particularly interesting things we could talk about. So to briefly summarize his time in the Congo, um, in early 1965, Guevara went to Africa to offer his knowledge and experience as a guerrilla to the ongoing conflict in the Congo. According, according to Algerian President Ahmed Ben Bala, Guevara thought that Africa was imperialism's weak link, and so had enormous revolutionary potential. Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, who had, who had fraternal relations with Shea since his 1959 visit, saw Guevara's plan to fight in the Congo as, quote, unwise, and warned that he would become a, quote, Tarzan figure, doomed to failure. Despite the warning, Guevara traveled to Congo using the alias Ramon Benitez. For a time, they collaborated with guerrilla leader Laurent Desiree Kabila, who had helped supporters of the overthrown Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba to lead an unsuccessful revolt months earlier. As an admirer of the late Lumumba, Guevara decided that, sorry, declared that his murder should be a lesson for all of us. Guevara, with limited knowledge of Swahili and the local languages, was assigned as a, a teenage interpreter, Freddy Ilanga. Over the course of seven months, Ilanga grew to admire the hardworking Guevara, who, quote, showed the same respect to black people as he did to whites. Guevara soon became disillusioned with the poor discipline of Kabila's troops and later dismissed him, stating, quote, nothing leads me to believe he is the man of the hour. As an additional obstacle, White mercenary troops of the Congo National Army, led by Thomas Michael Hore, known as Mad Mike Hore. Uh, let's see. I did want to just mention briefly this guy, Mad Mike Hore. When I found this passage on his time in the Congo, it led me to the Wikipedia page of this guy, Michael Hore. And it, basically, he's just a, an evil motherfucker. But let me just read a little bit about him just so I can give you guys a rundown. So he was a British South African mercenary soldier who claimed to have killed between 5,000 and 10,000 people during the Simba Rebellion and attempted to conduct a coup d'etat in the Seychelles. Try this real quick, because this actually may work. Let me, um... The greatest thrill I get, of course, is the command of men. I'm talking about real men. Not a whole flock of Nancy boys. I mean the real McCoy. And I love being in the presence of hard men, not necessarily ruffians, but uh, men who can live hard and not grapple. I like that type. The fact that they are under my command and that I have, in fact, I mean in fact, the power of life or death over them, this moves me in a strange way and makes all the sacrifices worthwhile. Were the stories of looting by the mercenaries in the Congo exaggerated? Well, I wasn't in a position to uh, to read most of the stories about, about the looting, but uh, looting there was, there's no question about it. How about atrocities? Uh, no, extremely few. In fact, never an atrocity in my command, uh, knowingly perpetrated, uh, never an order given to that end. Well, were there many summary executions? 
Percy killings of uh, wounded somebody. There's quite a lot of that, and uh, uh, somebody called marshals and executions. Uh, I don't regard that as anything but uh, normal practice in action. After all, you can't go around, particularly with a fast-moving column, you can't go along with a big echelon of, of 500 prisoners. You've, you've got to very quickly decide who are the ones that have got to be tried and, and punished. So that's just him talking about his time as a, you know, a mercenary in South Africa or in the Congo. And it's very obvious that he doesn't regard these people that he's, you know, policing as people. If he's just okay with, oh, well, you know, we've got to decide very quickly who's guilty and who has to just be killed because we can't take prisoners. Or, you know, that would just be impractical to cart these people around with us. Um, but the second clip I have of him is actually a little worse. Just uh, take a listen to this real quick. The, the, the African generally is a realist. His life is spent in uh, raising just sufficient food to feed himself, and nights are spent in dancing, literally. Uh, drinking of beer, which has been uh, brewed by his, his women folk. Uh, these people know how to live. This is the, the reduction of thousands of years. They're, they're, they're not bedeviled with the, the problems that we have in civilization. Uh, now, when it comes to raising an army to fight, only the very sophisticated amongst them can raise anything like what we call Espy de Corps or the unit spirit. They don't know what the devil we're talking about. Go out and get killed for what? They don't understand it. And they don't do it. So it's like that weird thing where like you do that white savior thing where you describe these people as primitive, but then also kind of revere them away and say that they're more wholesome or more pure in their primitive lifestyle. But like it's like the weirdest, like most racist backhanded way of complimenting an entire culture and simplifying them and boiling them down to this one stereotype. But I mean, at first I was like, yeah, I mean, they do know how to live. Like, you know, just making enough food, dancing and then women. Yeah, that sounds great. Oh, you had to get racist with it. Oh, okay. yep. yeah, yeah, hey. yeah. Uh, I was I was following um, until he's like, but, you know, also they're not white, so they're fucking terrible. <laughs> So the whole reason I even mentioned this guy is because, again, I just went down that small rabbit hole when I found Jesus. an article about him. But um, I mentioned him because um, he was the leader of the mercenary troops in the Congo that was fighting against uh, Shea. So, and this guy, he just died in February of 2020, by the way. He was 100 years old. All the assholes live forever, man. Him and Kissinger. And piss. So, as an, so that's why I mentioned him. As an additional obstacle... Um, the troops that were led by Mike Corre and supported by anti-Castro Cuban pilots and the CIA thwarted Guevara's movements from his base camp in the mountains near the village of Fisi in southeast Congo. They were able to monitor his communications and so preempted his attacks and interdicted his supply lines. Although Guevara tried to conceal his presence in the Congo, the United States government knew his location and his activities. The National Security Agency was intercepting all of his incoming and outgoing transmissions via equipment aboard the USNS Private Jose F. Valdez a floating listening post that continuously cruised the Indian Ocean off Dar es Salaam for that purpose. So just to give you an idea, like, how far the CIA and the U.S. intelligence agencies will go to monitor and thwart any leftist democratic uprising in any country that they're doing imperialism in because it's that much of a threat. They'll, they'll put a boat off the Congo just to listen to Che Guevara all the time and know what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, um, I would have been the first person to sign up to go and listen. Like, I want to hear what this fool's saying every day. That was the other thing I wanted to mention at the beginning was I got an email from someone about the last episode since I asked people to reach out to us and let us know if that episode was tolerable. And someone reached out and said, you know, she complimented us. She liked the episode. 
But then also said we should do an entire episode on just the CIA and all the meddling and shit they're responsible for. And I told her like we absolutely have that in the in the plans. Like we are going to do that at some point. That'll be three episodes. I know, <laughs> dude. Like It'll definitely have to be a multi-parter. Then, yeah. Uh, we can get into this section here addressing Shay's quote homophobia and racism. So obviously that's like I said the first thing that's going to happen if you put up Shay as any kind of like revolutionary figure that people should look up to. You're going to get all the neckbeards on the right or even just the liberal left and saying that, you know, he was some kind of racist or a homophobe or whatever. Well, just to like slightly throw back to like when you would originally brought that point up, like when he made like a, a fairly racist comment during like the it was either his first trip across South America or during the second one talking about Africans. Um, I. I'm not one to make up excuses for people because I think excuses are just a way to, to like justify certain things. But in Argentina, there is not a very large, uh, well, at least especially at the time, there was not a very large percentage of Afri- like African descended people in mm-hmm. Argentina. So Che coming from a upper middle class family and upbringing and have never having interacted with people of color before, like that weren't Argentinian before and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't out of the realm of just like, you kind of expect him to have some of those biases at first. And mind you, the comment that he made about like black people when he was traveling across South America, he made that when he was like 20 years old. So yeah, like, that's actually the last part of this session that I have. He was 24, and then by the end of that same trip, he had already changed his mind about it and said that he was wrong to say that. And, like, I mean, we'll get into it in a bit, but, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Like, he just had never really encountered people of color in Argentina. And while I, you know, like I mentioned at the very beginning, while he took care to treat everyone the same regardless of their financial situation, um, he just hadn't encountered people of different races, different colors. Yeah. And so this is him being young, ignorant, naive, stupid, and then learning as he traveled around all of South America and even to America and saw like the treatment of people of color at the hands of whites and it outraged him. And but, I mean, like mm-hmm. we'll get into it a little bit. Um, but what I wanted to start off with was reading this article uh, from humanprogress.org. And it was also published in the Huffington Post. And the article is called, quote, Shea was a racist, homophobe, and mass murderer. And the subhead is, gay? Uh, Shea Guevara would have sent you to a concentration camp. Now, this is written if, by... If that happened in Cuba when uh, Che wasn't even affiliated with the Cuban government anymore, by oh, yeah. the way. Oh, so this was published December 15th, 2017. And it's by Guillermina Sutter Schneider. And she is at G Sutter's, G-S-U-T-T-E-R-S on Twitter, if you want to find her. And so she writes... Today, 50 years after his death, many people still remember Ernesto Che Guevara as a warrior for social justice. For so many celebrities, politicians, and activists, Che Guevara is a kind of good Samaritan who fought against oppression and tyranny. It is unfortunate, though, that these people ignore some of their idols' defining character traits. Che Guevara was, in fact, an intolerant and despicable man. In the process of building a communist society after Fidel Castro came to power in 1959 in Cuba, one of the ideas Che Guevara presented and promoted was the notion of the, quote, new man. This concept grew out of Guevara's aversion to capitalism and was first explained in his note on, quote, man and socialism in Cuba. He believed that, quote, the individual under socialism is more complete and that the state should educate men and women in anti-capitalist, cooperative, selfless, and non-materialistic values. Anyone who deviated from the, quote, new man 
was seen as a kind of revolutionary. Such was the cause of gay men, such was the case of gay men, whom Guevara referred to as, quote, sexual perverts. Both Guevara and Castro considered homosexuality a bourgeois decadence. In an interview in 1965, Castro explained that, quote, a deviation of that nature classes with the concept we have of what a militant communist should be. Che Guevara also helped establish the first Cuban concentration camp in Guanajuato Bay in 1960. This camp was the first of many. From the Nazis, the Cuban government also adapted the motto at Auschwitz, quote, work sets you free, changing it to, quote, work will make you men. According to Alvaro Vargas Losa, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, Afro-Cuban priests, and others who were believed to have committed a crime against revolutionary morals were forced to work in these camps to correct their, quote, antisocial behavior. Many of them died, others were tortured or raped. Guevara also espoused racist views. In his diary, he referred to black people as, quote, those magnificent examples of the African race who have maintained their racial purity thanks to their lack of an affinity with bathing. He also thought that white Europeans were superior to the people of African descent and described Mexicans as, quote, a band of illiterate Indians. In the article, My Cousin El Che, Alberto Benegas Lynch Jr., described how Che Guevara enjoyed torturing animals, a trait common to serial killers. His record of murdering and torturing people is extensive. Researchers have documented 216 victim, victims of Che Guevara in Cuba from 1957 to 1959. Suspicion was all that was needed to end a life. There was no need for a trial because he said the revolution could not stop. It has the obligation to triumph, which is actually fairly similar to what uh, Mike Horay said a minute ago, but uh, he doesn't seem to catch any flack for that. It's um, also just so blatantly opposite of the truth it's yeah i mean so what i did was i read this article i mean let me just finish that up before we get into the debunks but um she says death to guevara was a necess- was a necessity for revolution he had no regard for human life today 50 years after his death it is important to remember ernesto che guevara as the person he was a homophobic racist mass murderer willing to use any means to achieve his self-declared superior society and yeah so this first appeared in the huffington post and Irmina sutter schneider is a research and project manager in the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. So that should tell you right there where this is coming from. If you're unfamiliar with the Cato, with the Cato Institute, it's another right-wing think tank. It's just like the Heritage Foundation. It's just like any of those other you know, projects run by the Koch brothers or whatever right-wing think tank you can think of that puts out all this propaganda and pays people like Steven Crowder to do it. So that was the first thing that came up when I Googled Che Guevara homophobic. Uh, the third thing that came up was a video by Bad Empanada, and he addresses the allegations made against Shea. And his video is called Shea Guevara, Homophobic Racist. And he does a fantastic job. It's a half-hour-long video, and it's very well-researched. Um, he addresses all the talking points from the HuffPost article and more. And I'm going to get the Cliff Notes version of this because I took a lot of his research because, again, he just made it very easy and put all the facts in one place. So he references several clips where Steven Crowder and PragerU both talk about Shea on their YouTube channels. Um, they both trot out these accusations that Shea was incredibly homophobic and hated black people. And Crowder also calls Shea a dictator, even though he never had any significant position in office. What's up, Stone? I, it's like they miss a huge piece of this, though. So how fucking much do they think that racism didn't exist in the U.S. at this time? Like they, they mm-hmm. hold they hold Shea to a standard where it's Shea versus fucking today and it's like i'm Mm -hmm. not saying that okay certain things were okay in the past but i am saying it was much more common for people to hold some views look again this is a very touchy thing but to compare 
him and bash him for things as if he was unique, that's where I have an issue. And that's what that's the picture they try to paint as if the U.S. is some fucking beacon of acceptance, you know, at this same time. And that's not the case. Yeah, well, it's like they were they were spraying um, like Martin Luther King with fire hoses and you could still legally get some give a homosexual a lobotomy. But then, you know, a, a out of context quote from two out of context quotes from Che from his early 20s before he even was a revolutionary. No shit, man. Yeah. Entirely define him as a person. Yeah. It, it's like even earlier, you're talking about him making the statements about the U.S. has fucking uh, water fountains that, you know, certain races can drink from. But I imagine Steven Crowder wasn't quoting that line from him. No. No, of course nope. not. Um, so yeah, like I said, Crowder also calls Shea a dictator, even though he never had any significant position in office in Cuba. Uh, he was the minister of economy at one point, and he was the minister of industries, and at one point he was head of the central bank. But he was never president or prime minister or any head of the state. And he also voluntarily left his position after five years, which is not something a power-hungry dictator usually does. Uh, so right off the bat, we're seeing that the right-wingers, mixing, they're mixing him up with Fidel Castro, first of all. And yeah. not to mention attributing the absolute most cynical interpretation to Castro's use of power and attributing that to Shea. Um, so anyway, the first piece of, quote, evidence that Crowder offers for Shea's homophobia is to say he frequently used a slur in Spanish that is equivalent to the F slur for gay people in English. Um, ironically enough, Bad Empanada, Bad Empanada in his video plays a clip from this very same Crowder video where he himself uses the F slur several times. Like basically, Crowder, in this same video where he's accusing Shea of being homophobic, uses the F word in place of socialism. Like he's describing Bernie Sanders and he's like, oh, it's, um, it's just democratic F. You know what I mean? Like he just yeah, like, yeah. he uses it left and right. So he's obviously not very concerned about um, homophobia whatsoever. Sorry, Stone, go ahead. And his defense is probably like, oh man, it was a different time back then, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. That's old. I said that way back in the day where that wasn't so crazy. <laughs> and it's like, imagine Che Guevara today like, if he was still at it today, do you really think that he'd fucking be racist or be prosecuting, you know, homosexuals? That's fucking crazy. Anyone who thinks that is a fucking crazy person. Dude, I fucking wish we had a Che kind of figure in our society today, because I guarantee you if we had a Che-type leader in the United States last year, like we would have had a fucking... It, oh yeah i mean <laughs> listen I, right. I i actually put her above today in my opinion oh no um, yeah no unironically this is slightly off topic last year during some of the protests and shit i would wear my like beret that has like the red star on it and shit okay. and somebody tried doxing me saying that i i was uh that i was trying to be a little che or something like that and i was just like <laughs> Thanks, guys. (laughs) Okay. I was like, I appreciate that. Please don't come to my house. I do own guns. (laughs) So, um, okay, getting back to the Crowder bullshit. So, regardless, Bad Empanada went through all of Shay's writings. Um, It's actually not that hard to do. You can just, like, control F when you have PDFs of the stuff. And he didn't find a single use of the slur, which is pretty odd for someone who apparently frequently used it. And the article that Crowder is citing for this doesn't cite any source itself for the claim that Guevara loved using the slur. And if you Google Che Guevara and the slur, the only results that come up are from anti-Che right-wing articles and websites that call him the name. 
The other piece of evidence given for Shea, for Guevara's homophobia is his supposed role in deporting Allen Ginsberg from Cuba. But Shea wasn't even in Cuba at the time. He was in the USSR for that whole year, as well as Europe and in Africa. And then, when on, when then he went into hiding because people were after him. He hadn't been anywhere near Cuba for about a year before Ginsberg was there. He also had been involving himself less and less in Cuban politics during that time for two reasons. First, he was outspokenly against Soviet involvement in Cuba, which put him at odds with Castro. And he also didn't want to be a politician. He wanted to go to other countries and start socialist revolts in there, like the Congo, as we mentioned. Um, now, addressing the alleged... Unlike okay. Trotsky, is kind of line where he believed that the revolution needs to continue by spreading. And so, oh, no. like, I mean, I shouldn't say... Not Shay the Trotskyist. I'm just saying he comes from, like, this a similar kind of, uh, like, line of thinking that the revolution needs to continue to spread, otherwise it'll stagnate. I mean, even if he was, like, a full-on Trotskyist and, like, loved Trotsky and had, like, pictures of him everywhere, I would say the same thing about analyzing leftist tendencies from that time as we do about analyzing people's views on race and homophobia. It's like, it's a different time. Like people were still figuring this shit out. Like for all they knew, Trotskyism was the way to go. It's like, they didn't have the lens of history to look at all this stuff now where we can say, look, Trotsky didn't have it right. And Stalin kind of had a little better, but go ahead. Sterling. I just want to shit on Trotsky for a second. So please do uh, his whole thing about a permanent revolution. I find so intriguing considering he was the motherfucker who didn't want to start the revolution. Like his whole thing was like, Oh, the Bolsheviks can't really do it. We need to wait around for the Mensheviks who don't even fucking believe in what we're doing in order <laughs> to start the shit. Up. I'm like permanent revolution, more like fucking never revolution. And that's ultras mm-hmm. in a nutshell. Fuck y'all. <laughs> that and collaborating with Nazis. Yeah. yeah. To be fair, to be fair, you got to give Trotsky some props. Okay. He did bang Frida Kahlo. He did what? what? He banged Frida Kahlo, and honestly, that's a pro gamer move right there. Did he really, though? Do we know that for he sure? Fam- it's famously he had an affair with Frida Kahlo when he was uh, exiled in Mexico. Isn't it like part of like this whole story, and you know, who's to say whether it's actually true or not, but he completely like falls in love with Frida and she just cuts him the fuck off. And then he goes on for years. That's what just, I thought happened. I thought he was just simping and she yeah, wasn't really into I, him. I, I think he just simped super hard. Now he may have actually hit, but even if he hit, <laughs> even if Chotsky hit, he still simped for like five years until he died. <laughs> oh, he absolutely was way bigger, way more into Frida than she was into him. But they definitely they had like a few month long affair. Really, Trotsky's Damn. wife found out, and then they went to a different uh, place. Huh? Literally, the the affair only ended because Trotsky's wife found out. Damn. <laughs> and I was and, about to give him props, but now it's actually just fucked up. And also, Frida yeah. Frida may have finally read some of Trotsky's writings. <laughs> <laughs> like this is not great. Uh, this isn't the way to go, buddy. <laughs> Um, okay, so getting back to, uh, let's see, where was I? Okay, so now addressing the alleged concentration camps. There were, in fact, camps, and they were called UMAPs, or Unidades Militares de Ayuda a la Producción, which means military units to aid production. Daniel, you're probably just, like, cringing at my Spanish pronunciation. Sorry. I, listen, my dad was in the military growing up, so I'm very... I don't speak very much Spanish, and I do not pronounce it any better than you do, so. <laughs> <laughs> a quesadilla? Hell yeah. No, I, um, I'm not that 
I'm not that green. <laughs> <laughs> so these camps were active from 1965 to 69 as an alternative form of civil service for people who didn't want to be conscripted as soldiers, most often conscientious objectors. And so you'll remember when I mentioned before that there were Jehovah's Witnesses and other religious people who were put in these camps as well as gay people. It was anybody who didn't want to be, you know, who didn't want to serve as a soldier, didn't want to fight. And so as was the case in most countries at the time, openly gay people were not allowed to serve in the military. So instead they were forced to work in these camps and they were in fact often subject to abuse. So obviously this isn't good and Bad Empanada in his video makes it clear that he isn't defending it by any means and neither would we here. But it's still worth pointing out the context of the time period. And also what was going on in the U.S., as you mentioned, Sterling, since most of the criticism about Shea or Fidel or Cuba in general comes from the United States. And here in the U.S., openly gay people weren't allowed to serve in the military until 2011. Uh, the USA was also forcefully drafting people into military service for the Vietnam War at the same time in the late 60s. And conscientious objectors who refused or openly gay men who were not permitted to enlist were sent to prison, many of them for five-year sentences, most of them for five-year sentences. And again, famously Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Yeah. So, and even today, even since like the, you know, leaving the don't ask, don't tell, you still are going to have a pretty fucking terrible time if you go into the military as a homosexual. I mean, plain and simple, yeah. they're going to fucking drag you, man. Best case scenario. And also, mm -hmm. you know, don't join the military. Fuck that shit. Yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, if it's a communist military, please. But. <laughs> well, I mean, also Castro, like famously later took credit, like and took personal responsibility for mm -hmm. those camps. And he literally, like, I don't remember the exact quote off the top of my head, but he even literally said he was just like, it is one of my greatest shames because he yeah. like, cause you know, a person's a pit, like mind can change on certain things. Cause like in like, he personally took all full responsibility for those camps going into you know uh operation and shit so it's like i don't know how still che who in the first place has nothing to do with these camps yeah wasn't in cuba wasn't in cuba wasn't involved wasn't even in a government position anymore wasn't a minister of anything is somehow being blamed for this <laughs> i don't know no you're you're right on i mean and it is funny because in the next episode, you know, I think we're going to do a third episode on Cuba because, like I said, I wanted to wrap up some parts about the Cuban Revolution. But I do want to address the accusations of um, Fidel himself being homophobic or racist or anything like that, because I think that there's actually more grounds for that criticism. And I think that, sh that Fidel, again, I don't know the whole story because I haven't done the research yet. I just have a vague impression that he probably had some bad views that were more common at the time. And it's a little unfair to probably judge him, you know, by today's standards of tolerance and acceptance. But at the same time, I don't think his views were probably as bad as America and American criticism makes it out to be because they have a vested interest in doing that. And I think that's a, a pattern that we're going to see here. But again, I won't really know until I look into it more myself. And then we will speak about that on the next episode. Uh, let me go with you, Daniel, and then Sterling. Well, I just want to kind of give from like a, my personal background. I'm Hispanic. You know, mm -hmm. I come from a Hispanic family. I know you know, I can't speak for everybody's families and everything, but Hispanic cultures have, ha you know, historically been a lot more a lot of machismo uh, there, a, a lot more machismo. And then culturally, they've been a lot more conservative. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm completely honest. I've been working on a lot of my family members on my Hispanic side of the family to kind of 
show them that there is nothing wrong with being in the LGBT and stuff like that. And it's like, you're coming from the perspective of, you're talking about a Hispanic man that comes from a relatively socially conservative uh, upbringing. And is he's also in the 60s. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. Like, yeah, is it completely dog shit and is it completely shitty? Absolutely. But it's like, you also have to look at certain cultural aspects that go behind these. The fact that even today, a lot of these Hispanic nations are still relatively culturally conservative when it comes to um, gay people and stuff like that. But it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I just I wanted to throw that out there since I have a, like a slightly different perspective on stuff like that. Yeah, that's cool. Would you have Sterling? Yeah, and I just wanted to go even further, you know, talking about like even... Fidel, you know, being racist and stuff. A lot of that is a byproduct of nationalism. When you take someone who is extremely nationalist, you do put your people, nationality, and sometimes race, you know, atop others because you have a primary goal. And I am not at all trying to defend, like, you know, racism here. Yeah. But what I'm saying is there is a huge difference between nationalism, like Cuban nationalism or African nationalism or Guatemalan nationalism and fucking white nationalism. Whereas all of the others are trying to get fucking equal and trying to take back what already really belongs to them. Whereas white nationalism is about imperialism and holding all the others down. Like, you know, we talk about the system a lot and thought slime made a comment on one of the videos I was watching a, a while back that I thought was really good. And he's like, let's keep in mind when we say, uh, we talk about the system. We we talk about other nationalists, other nationalities fighting the system. Let's keep in mind what the system, quote unquote, actually is, and that is white people. At the end of the day, because we are the ones who have built imperialism, we are the ones who have uh, colonized all these other countries. So, being okay with nationalism is dangerous because it's a it's a very touchy thing. And I'm not saying I even am, but I'm saying. When you are leading a revolution in your country and you are a Cuban nationalist who believes in the Cuban people and puts them above everyone else and that leads to uh, overthrowing a fucking dictator and bringing literacy and bringing healthcare and bringing education and bringing all these things to your people, that's a little better than what fucking nationalism actually means in our country. And I just think yeah. people need to keep the context. I'm not defending nationalism i'm just saying that's a very fucking different thing there and here and sometimes we try to hold it to very equal purity tests when that's not fair well that was my I, mean, I was just gonna say that was my short explanation in the last episode when i was saying like nationalism among a colonized people and they're using it to band together to fight imperialism is very different from yeah. nationalism used by colonizers to hold those people down yeah. And I would recommend people go check out their Red Menace episode on colonialism and nationalism because they did a very deep dive, a great discussion on that. I can't remember the name or the number of the episode off the top of my head, but if you just look at Red Menace for colonialism, settler colonialism and nationalism, it's a great explanation of the difference between the two. But uh, sorry, go ahead, Daniel. Um, and I mean, this is going to be kind of more of an opinion statement, but it does kind of go along the lines with some of the views that uh, Che had. It is of my opinion that when when talking about leftist movements, especially in South America, going for a more nationalist kind of angle with it is very much a you're you're kind of cutting on a razor's edge because there have been a lot of those cultural divides due to nationalist movements in South America. Like 
with Argentina, with Bolivia, with Para, uh, Paraguay, with uh, Guatemala and, and Cuba, exa- for an example, where if you want to have a successful, far-reaching communist revolution in South America, it needs to be fueled by this pan-American vision where mm-hmm. you guys are all trying to equally break this colonialist stranglehold that you have. And that besides some cultural dist- uh, differences, like I will never say Puerto Ricans are the same as Chileans or anything like that. Cause I being Puerto Rican, I will, I acknowledge we're not the same, but we all come from similar backgrounds and we have all been abused in such similar ways that taking on more of a pan American kind of view on the revolution to spread spread it across south america and stuff to me would have been a better way to go about pursuing a national uh well an international revolution in south america instead of more going with oh we are cuban so we need to blah 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 like it that that's just me because i i believe that certain embracing certain nationalist talking points in leftist movements can this can become a slippery slope yeah you can see that all right, so getting back just to, well, it's not even going to wrap it up because we haven't even addressed like his uh, the claims of racism. I got a lot more here, but anyway, I just wanted to like clarify like this isn't even like whataboutism like to bring up the U.S. in this context and like say like I was saying like how most of the criticism of Cuba, Fidel, and Shea comes from the U.S. Um, this is just to try to add context. It's not even like to deflect. It's just to point out that this was sadly very common at the time for people to be homophobic or to hold racial views that we don't you know, ascribed to today that we find abhorrent today, rightfully so. Um, it's just worth pointing out that when people want to claim Shea or Fidel were uniquely totalitarian, because that's what they're doing. Like they're, they're holding up these guys as uniquely bad figures while also revering people who are alive right now, um, who hold even worse views unapologetically. And, you know, so it's, it's obviously hypocritical is the point. So in the, in the video, again, Bad Empanada points out here that gay sex was made legal in Cuba in 1979, whereas here in the States, it's still illegal in 13 states. Also, still addressing the fact that what Cuba did was still wrong, even given the time period, Fidel in 2010 took responsibility for it. He said, quote, if someone is responsible for the abuse of gay people after the revolution, it's me. And I honestly can't imagine any American politician speaking that directly about anything, let alone taking responsibility for wrongdoing like that. Like, that would literally blow my mind if any pre- like president or you know, a politician in America just got up and spoke that directly about anything. So getting back to Shea, once he left for the Congo in 1965, he never returned to public life and never held a position in the Cuban government. He literally had nothing to do with the UMAPs at all. And as we'll get into in our last segment, just after this, Shea died in 1967 in Bolivia. So to claim Shea was responsible for locking gay people in concentration camps, we'd have to believe he was running things in the Cuban government while fighting a guerrilla war in the Congo or in Bolivia. And the policy for the camps wasn't even written until after he'd already left. So Shea did take part in opening one camp, the one mentioned in that HuffPost article, uh, Guanajuato Bibes, but it had nothing to do with repressing gay people or any particular group of people. In the John Lee Anderson biography that I referenced before, he describes Guanajuato Bibes. He says, quote, if someone had practiced nepotism, intentionally covered up a mistake, or had an affair with a comrade's wife, he was called before Shea, who gave offenders an opportunity to accept their punishment, a stint in the camp, or else leave the ministry. If they did their time and showed that they had learned the error of their ways, they could return to work with no black mark on their record. And if they refused, they were out of a job. So it's harsh. It's maybe like a bit excessive, um, but it's not throwing gay people into camps. And it's not even throwing like anybody into camps. It's just like, 
an alternative and then you get your job back afterwards. I mean, so. it was pretty on brand for Che's leadership style, too, because, I mean, throughout the revolution, his men loved him. His men mm-hmm. absolutely idolized Che, but he was also very tough and very strict on his uh, uh, column when he was leading them, which, I mean, that's just his type of leadership in that position and stuff. You know, he was never not fair to his soldiers and stuff. And, like, I mean, to be fair, like, he's giving them and out like say oh you don't want to go to that camp i just you gotta get a different job then like mm-hmm. he's not forcing anyone to do that you know it's yeah 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 you didn't have to go to the camp you could just not be in that job that you had before you could just go get a different job like you know conservatives love telling you that go get a different job if you don't like it right <laughs> yeah all right so then we can also address the claim that che himself was personally homophobic since we've firmly established that he had nothing to do with the repression of gay people in cuba the one quote that is referenced in every article that makes this claim when it, you know, is when Shea reportedly called gay people, quote, sexual perverts. Um, this is actually where Bad Empanada in his video references the exact article I just read and also points out that the author works for the Cato Institute. So if you click the source for that quote, it leads to a blog by this guy, Nicholas Marquez, who is an extreme right-wing Catholic fundamentalist, ultra-conservative, free market capitalist who self-identifies as, quote, alt-right and who has himself had a fair amount of controversies regarding his own open homophobia, among other types of bigotry. And if you look up his Wikipedia, this is all in the first paragraph. He's got just about every phobia you can have. Um, it also mentions how he has defended state terrorism in Argentina. So it doesn't seem too outlandish that he wouldn't be objective when talking about Che Guevara. Um, but going further, Ben Empanada finds the original source for this quote. And just by doing that, he's doing more work than even the author of that HuffPost article did, because it's actually pretty funny. He explains that the quote was probably pretty difficult for the author to find, since it's from the most popular thing that Shea ever wrote, the Motorcycle Diaries. It's not like, it's right there, like if you want to find the sexual perverts quote. The full quote is, quote, He was an introvert and was probably gay, too. The poor man was drunk and desperate because they hadn't invited him to the party. He began to yell and insult people until some of them beat him up and gave him a black eye. This episode bothered us because apart from him being a sexual pervert and a bore, we liked him. So it's like, it's not a good quote. Like, it doesn't make him sound like a really nice guy at the time. But at the same time, I will say, like, it's not entirely clear that the man in question, like the person that he's talking about, it's not clear that his being a homosexual is what Shay is referring to as the perversion. Like, it could have just been that he was gay and then also, you know, kind of a perv. But even if we just... There's multiple interpretations of that quote that you could take, you know? Yeah. But even if we assume that like, he's talking about the guy being homosexual and when he's referencing perversion, even if we assume that is 100% the case, it's still the only homophobic thing Shea ever wrote. And you might think, well, just because he didn't write it doesn't mean he didn't feel that way. But the thing is, this is Shea, and he was constantly writing diaries about his thoughts and his experiences. So if he were rapidly homophobic, as people like, who criticize him claim, it would probably have come up at some, again at some point. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a very fair point. Yeah. So, so as for uh, Shea supposedly being racist, this is another article from the HuffPost. And uh, this one luckily wasn't my first result when I, when I searched Shea Guevara racist. The top result was still that other HuffPost article that I read. But this was the fifth result. And this is by Michael Gonzalez, who is Vice President of Communications for the Heritage Foundation. All these totally objective people writing uh, articles about Shea Guevara. So this was published January 11, 2012, with an update on March 12th the same year. And he says, quote, there's something about Che Guevara that convinces older European men that they will become cooler through association with his, quote, brand. 
We saw that again yesterday when Mercedes-Benz chairman Dieter Zetka launched a new car under the banner of Che Guevara. Years ago, an equally desperate Anglican clergyman tried to stem dwindling congregations with a poster of Guevara wearing a crown of thorns. And the hip slogan? Meek and mild? As if. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine like a poster of Che Guevara with a crown of thorns like Jesus and the quote under, like the caption underneath says, meek and mild? As if. <laughs> like it's just such, it's just desperate, desperate like liberal marketing. So he goes on. The Anglican church continues to, ahem, have its problems attracting people to an increasingly troubled denomination. As to whether communism will help um, a luxury car maker sell a lavish lifestyle, well, let's say I remain agnostic. But the occasion to comment on the appropriateness of using Che Guevara to market anything cannot be passed up. Che Guevara, not to put too, too fine a point on it, was a psychopath whose sadistic lust for blood was not easily quenched. He killed for pleasure. He had, moreover, little time for youthful rebellion and none at all for individualism. Lastly, Che Guevara was a racist who specifically held blacks in contempt. I think about this often when I see deluded young African-Americans wearing a t-shirt with his likeness. But a German born... Uh, but a German born a handful of years after 1945 really ought to have known better. Much has been written about how Che Guevara executed me. Hey, Mike, can you hear us? Sorry. Hey, sorry, we, we lost you again. Uh, at uh, much has been said or something. Okay. Let me, I'm going to disconnect my VPN and see if that helps. Okay. Also, who, who, dr who drank my beer? <laughs> okay so much has been written about how Guevara executed men and boys in prison in the early revolutionary years in Cuba disposing of such bourgeois niceties as trials this little snippet from a 1966 speech by Guevara ought to have given Zetka some pause and here's this speech that he's very selectively quoting from Shea to try and make him seem evil quote hatred is the central element of our struggle hatred that is intransigent Hatred so violent that it propels a human being beyond his natural limitations, making him a violent and cold-blooded killing machine. We reject any peaceful approach. Violence is inevitable. To establish socialism, rivers of blood must flow. The imperialist enemy must feel like a hunted animal wherever he moves. Thus, we'll destroy him. These hyenas are fit only for extermination. We must keep our hatred alive and fan it to paroxysm. The victory of socialism is well worth millions of atomic victims. That's, that's that's extremely that's based. Badass. Yeah, that's very. It that's sounds so badass. Like he said again, this is what they do. They try to make him seem bad. They're just like, no, I actually agree with all of that. Like, fuck imperialists, fuck capitalists. Like, do the wall. That's Out of zone. Extremely based. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> um, and then so going on back to that guy's article, but rebellion was something only reserved for Guevara and others in government. In an earlier speech spurning, quote, the spirit of rebellion in 1961, he made clear that government was in charge. He said, quote, youth must refrain from ungrateful questioning of governmental mandates, he said. As for Guevara's views on race, he did not mince words. After the revolution's, revolution's victory in 1959, he famously said, quote, we're going to do for blacks exactly what blacks did for the, for the revolution, by which I mean nothing. And no, it wasn't just hard feelings over how Cuban blacks had supported the biracial dictator Batista. With Guevara, it was more of a conviction, as we can glean from another quote. Speaking of blacks, he said, quote, The slur is, an, is indolent and lazy and spends his money on frivolities, whereas the European is forward-looking, organized, and intelligent. And so we'll get to that quote in a little bit, but that's not actually the quote. But anyway, going on just to wrap up that article. Yes, quite a model that 
that Che Guevara. You'd buy a car from him, wouldn't you? What will Mercedes-Benz come up with next? The Bader Meinhof Super Coupe? Um, that was the last of the article. And then he posted an update a couple months later. He says, update to Mercedes-Benz credit. It apologized 48 hours after the event. A statement said in part, Daimler was not condoning the life or actions of this historical figure or the political philosophy he espoused. We sincerely apologize to those who took offense. The spokesman also said it was very thoughtless not to realize that by doing that, it would offend a large number of people. Adding of the PR person who thought up the use of Che Guevara's image, it was absolutely stupid that somebody did it. So, I mean, it's let's not get like into, Mercedes uh, made cars for the Nazis or anything. Exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> BMW too. Yeah, like, or and Porsche. Uh, like mm-hmm. it, it's just. Yeah, it's funny when you look at like German companies and their long storied history and you're like uh, asking them about the company and then there's that weird gap for a few years there. I don't know why. Uh, uh, Fanta. <laughs> um, okay, so the two quotes referenced in this article as evidence for Shea's racism are the same that every article making these claims reference. For the first, the one about black people doing nothing for the revolution, there is no source given and none comes up if you Google it, even when translated into the original Spanish. The oldest source for that quote is a 2007 blog by a guy named Frank Warner, who describes himself as a, quote, liberal for liberation. And I looked at his blog. If you guys want to check it out, it's frankwarner.typepad.com. And it's another far right rant space, as you'd expect. And his short post from November 26, 2016, for instance, he says, it's a very short one. He just says, Fidel Castro is dead. Time for a free Cuba. With the death of Cuba, Cuban dictator Fidel Castro, his 11 million slaves finally have a chance to claim the freedom that is their right. Just yesterday, I said that I wanted to return to Cuba when it is free. I think that day of liberation is finally coming soon. But if you look at this guy's blog, he's just a far-right nut job. Like, day of liberation came back all the way in the 50s, so you know, <laughs> he can hop off of his you know, high horse there. Um, so, but anyway, the point is, Frank Warner invented that Shea quote. It circulated around the internet forums and blogs, but that HuffPost article was the first, quote, mainstream news source to print it. And that's what gave it the air of legitimacy to the point that even Senator Mark Rubio quoted it, which really made it popular among the right wing nuts. Um, as for the other quote, the one with the slur, this is by far the most cited as evidence for him being a racist. And again, Shea writes a lot. So he, if he were really incredibly racist, there should be a lot more evidence for this in his writings. But this is the only quote. And even that is falsely quoted. Here is the actual quote. So he doesn't even start it off with the slur. He says, black people, the same magnificent specimen of the African race that have maintained their racial purity by not bathing enough, have seen their domain trespassed by a new kind of slave, the Portuguese. And these two old races have started in a hard everyday life by fighting each other for every little thing. Contempt and poverty unites them, but they are completely separated in the way they face it. Indolent and dreamy black people spend their money on frivolous things, whereas European people have a tradition of working hard that follows them to this corner of the Americas and helps them progress, regardless of their own individual goals. And that's from the Motorcycle Diaries, again. So it's very easy to find that quote. Um, now, it's obviously incredibly racist. It's a very fucking racist quote. Like, I'm not going to deny it. Bad Empanada doesn't, like, make any kind of excuses for it in his video either. Um, we would never even try to defend it. But all we will do is try to provide the context for it, which may explain Shay's attitudes and how they change a little bit. So when I was talking about the Motorcycle Diaries and him traveling around, we already explained how Shay had his attitudes changed by traveling and meeting working class people. And that's the story here as well. When he wrote this, he was 24 and he had just started his traveling and writings that would become, you know, later become the book. And Bad Empanada does a great job citing sources for him, having learned and corrected those views shortly after. Um, at the very end of that same trip, he visited Miami for a month 
And there he witnessed white racism against black people, and it infuriated him. That Anderson biography that I've mentioned a few times talks about him telling his friends in Buenos Aires about it when he returned. And one of the last things he writes in his motorcycle diaries is this. He says, quote, The person who wrote these words died upon landing once more in Argentina. It's, I'm not me. At least I'm not who I was before. This wandering around our great America has changed me more than I thought. But obviously, since actions speak louder than words, you may say, well, did Shea ever do anything to give evidence for this change of heart rather than just writing that he changed his mind? And in fact, after the revolution in Cuba, Shea was the most outspoken person in the Cuban government for school integration. Shea gave this speech in 1959 at the University of Las Villas, five years before colleges in the, U in the U.S. were forcibly integrated. And he says, quote, So what must I say about the university's fundamental duty? It's article number one in this new Cuba. What I must say is that the university must color itself black and color itself mulatto, not just students, but also professors. And I guess keep in mind that mulatto, well, I guess it's a slur now. It probably wasn't back then. So just to put that in context as well. Um, and two years later in Uruguay, he gave this speech talking about the Cuban Revolution. And he says, quote, Among our first task was the abolition of racial discrimination, which existed in our country, in a somewhat subtle form, but it existed. The beaches of our island were not for blacks or for the poor to swim at because they belonged to some private club visited by tourists who did not like to swim with black people. Our hotels, Havana's great hotels, which were built by foreign companies, did not allow black people as guests because tourists from other countries did not like it. That's the way our country was. And also from that same speech, he says, Democracy is not compatible with financial oligarchy, with discrimination against blacks and outrages by the Ku Klux Klan, or with the persecution that deprived the world for years of the marvelous voice of Paul Robeson. And for that, I would reference people to go check out uh, the Proles Pod episode on Paul Robeson, because there's a lot of context there that you won't get if you don't know the story of Paul Robeson. But that's uh, episode 20 of the Proles of the Roundtable podcast. Go ahead. You keep quoting the John Lee Anderson uh, biography, and I cannot recommend that book enough to people. Like, is it actually book, good? The audiobook is fucking amazing. I've listened to it like seven times. Like, it is amazing because they actually get a native Spanish speaker to read it. Mm -hmm. He pr actively pronounces the like names of things and pronounces things correctly. But the guy did such an insane amount of research. Like, he even like was able to get Che's second wife um to like for, like give him like papers and writings and stuff that hadn't been like given to anybody else so he could write with it and stuff like he actually went to uh like all these different nations and uh towns that he had been in and talked to different people and stuff it's it's incredible it took him like five years to put together and stuff it's it's incredible man that's awesome I actually that makes me happy because I didn't read the book. Um, obviously, I wasn't going to read like an entire biography in like the week we did this episode. But um, I did see a bunch of interviews with John Lee Anderson, and he was you know talking about Che Guevara, obviously. And I couldn't tell from the context whether he was like, you know, doing like the liberal thing of like, oh, well, he did a couple good things, but he was mostly a bad guy overall. So it actually makes me very happy that he did like a good biography and like did him justice. I'm well, sure there's still some like lib cringe moments, but. I mean, not even actually. It's like he's just brutally honest with what like he doesn't like even really put like any kind of spin on anything. If I'm being mm -hmm. completely honest, like he literally just puts it. He does it what biography should. He basically tells the story as a timeline and has the events as they happen. Like he doesn't sugarcoat the bad things that Che did or like the some of the shitty things he did like. He actively talks about how he cheated on his first wife with his second wife. Like 
he actively talks about like some of the questionable things he said like in his early years um but then he also talks about the integrity he had during the revolution when it came to i'm not going to give an order to execute a spy if i'm not willing to follow through on it and then he would be the one that would do it you know like yeah he doesn't have any kind of like cringe lib spin at least from the readings i've had from it mm-hmm. um it's it's very good I, I i like it a lot um yeah that's cool i'm gonna have to check it out now i, I definitely wanted to after seeing the interviews but now i really want to so then now again referencing uh this is shay speaking out against uh, apartheid in south africa at the u.n and he says quote once again we raise our voice and speak out to the world on guard uh, and speak out to put the world on guard about what is happening in south africa the brutal policy of apartheid is applied in plain view of the eyes of the nations of the world the people of Africa are forced to endure the fact that in their continent, superiority of one race over another still remains official policy. And in the name of this racial superiority, murder is committed with impunity. Can the United Nations do nothing to stop this? And then also, this is Shea that same day. He says, quote, Those who kill their own children and discriminate daily against them because of the color of their skin. Those who let the murderers of blacks remain free, protecting them, and furthermore punishing the black population because they demand their legitimate rights as free men. How can those who do this consider themselves the guardians, the guardians of freedom? And of course, here he was referring to the United States, but it's like, it's especially appropriate because that quote, he could have said that this year and it would be just as appropriate now. But okay, so wrapping up that whole section, in case it wasn't already clear, the right wing and neoliberal detractors who like to scold lefties for liking Shea obviously don't care about homophobia or racism or even really believe the stuff that they're saying about him. It's just a rhetorical game that they're playing and not even an honest one to remove another inspirational figure from the minds of leftists. And that's basically what it comes down to. It's like, I'm sure we could all think of examples of like critics of leftist heroes applying modern day standards of tolerance to historical figures and even then doing it dishonestly. I mean, I'm sure we've never seen any kind of pattern of people saying like, oh, such and such um, leftist leader was actually a homophobe or was actually a racist or actually anti-Semitic or whatever. Um, And then doing that dishonestly, not because they actually care about those marginalized groups, but because they just want to take down this this hero. Um, Or or better yet, can you imagine any examples of people who have said homophobic or racist things in their youth? And that these same people who would criticize Shane Fidel then hold up as heroes and say, oh, it was just a youthful indiscretion and they didn't really know. You should forgive them for their past transgressions, even if they don't have a similarly long history of then fighting racism and bigotry after that. You know what I mean? Like how many times is like who are like these politicians who Biden. always show up with like pictures of them in blackface or something Biden. like. Yeah. Yeah. Biden. Even Biden, like, yeah, like Biden all over like, the map has. Oh, my God. Been so like involved. Ben Shabibo does that all the time where it's like he doesn't actively care about gay people and stuff but then he like will criticize a certain like he will actively criticize like biden or something like that when it comes to his past uh standards on gay marriage or something like that but then actively make a video about a trans actor and refer to them by the wrong name or the wrong pronouns like it's always a game to these right-wing people because they don't actually give a shit they're just virtue signaling to virtue signal well, that and it's just like, if you want to legitimately criticize Shay, Fidel, Stalin, whoever, for like the views that they held at the time that were more appropriate for the time and that we wouldn't accept today because we're tolerant people who don't hate marginalized people. I get that. And, you know, that's fine if you want to do that. But then also take into consideration what they did. Like Stalin beat the fucking Nazis. 
Shay and Fidel liberated Cuba and improved people's material conditions drastically. So now if you want to criticize them for the things that they did and said, go ahead and do that, but then also recognize the good things they did and then see if you can apply that standard equally to somebody like Biden. Did Biden liberate an entire country and improve people's <laughs> material conditions while also being friends with Strom Thurmond? No, he fucking didn't. Like, did any of the politicians that, like, conservatives and liberals stick up for, like John McCain, did they liberate people and, like, start a revolution against the oligarchs? No, they fucking didn't. But they just say racist shit and then you forgive them for it because you think they're supposed to grow, but you don't apply that same level of, you know, criticism and honesty to people who actually did good things. It's like Che Guevara is single-handedly pretty much responsible for the fact that uh, Cuba is more literate than some U.S. states, and the fact yeah. that their healthcare is ranked overwhelmingly above the United States, mm-hmm. even though they are restricted in what material they can receive medically because of yeah. the United States embargoes. Like, he is single-handedly responsible for that because he told Castro he wanted that, that to be a priority. He set up hospitals and taught um, uh, people in the uh, mountainous regions of Cuba how to read and then gave them free check uh, medical checkups during the revolution. Like while they're actively at war, he was doing this for the peasantry. (laughs) (laughs) What's also interesting about this embargo, you know, this vote that just happened at the UN, what was it? 187 or something to two to lift, Mm -hmm. lift the sanctions on Cuba. And obviously the two was the U.S. and Israel. Uh-huh. Like, we realize that they're still not going to lift the sanctions, right? Like, the U.N. doesn't mean shit. Like, that's the crazy thing is, like, that vote might as well have not even happened. Because when it comes to Mm -hmm. the U.S., they look at that vote and say, okay, well, this is 100% unanimous because only one vote on that matters. (laughs) It's so fucked up, dude. Like, what is the U.N. going to do? Are they going to just suddenly embargo the United States? Like, I wish they fucking would. You know <laughs> I was going to say, it'd be great. You know how big dick of it would be for just the rest of the world just to be like, all right, we're going to put baby in a corner for a bit and then just see what happens. Because it's like, if you really consider it, like, I don't know if you guys actually know much about, like, how the Cuban economic system, like, works and, like, how they... Now. You, it that could be a whole video in its own. I, I'm pretty sure Bad Empanada has another video that's mm-hmm. about that. The way that they're able to take care of their people while being constantly dunked on by um, embargoments and shit like that is genuinely impressive. Yeah. Like, imagine if they were actually given access to just free trade the way that every other sovereign nation is. Imagine how much better the standard of living would be for every single one of their people, which is already not that bad yeah. compared to other uh, South uh, South American nations and Caribbean nations and shit like that. Like, straight up, Cuba is better off than Puerto Rico is, and Puerto Rico is a commonwealth of the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, just imagine if they were actually able to have the resources to give more to their population. Like, it would be insane. Like. You know, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about it personally. Like, all I know is from the two Pearl Spot episodes on Cuba, and there was a, I think Brett uh, from Rev Left did on his podcast, Guerrilla History, they talked a little bit about Cuba. I think they had VJ Prashad on for that episode, but basically, they were comparing, and just like you said, like Puerto Rico had been without power for a long time after a hurricane. 
they're now now their power infrastructure is completely privately owned and it's fucking them over like week one of the private ownership it's terrible but like then in cuba when they know a hurricane is coming they have engineers that go and tear down all the power lines so that they don't get damaged and then after the hurricane's over they go and put them back up and they don't lose power at all like they're fine the whole time like i guess for the duration of the hurricane they do but they do this preemptively because they have their version of like the army corps of engineers but they actually go out and do stuff for the citizens instead of just like doing the shit that our army does, which is lock people up in camps and shit. So it's just, it's a much better system and it actually works. And God forbid you export that. But it's funny that you say like, imagine if the rest of the world decided to embargo the United States. It's almost like a meta communist kind of like, imagine like the USA, like the boss and all the other countries are like the employees in this like global marketplace, because that's kind of how the USA functions. And imagine them like all the other countries unionizing and taking down the United States and saying, we're not fucking taking it anymore. Like it would be fantastic, but it just won't happen because we spend 10 times more on our military than anybody else. Yeah. All right. So the last section I have here is the death of Shay, sadly. So Felix Rodriguez, a Cuban exile, AKA Gusano, turned CIA Special Activities Division operative, advised Bolivian troops during the hunt for Guevara in Bolivia. In addition, the 2007 documentary My Enemy's Enemy alleges that a Nazi war criminal, Klaus Barbie, advised and possibly helped the CIA orchestrate Guevara's eventual capture. Um, A note on Klaus Barbie, um, I just took his intro from the Wikipedia because he's a fucking awful figure that people should know more about. Um, Nicholas Klaus Barbie was a Nazi known as the, quote, Butcher of Lyon, for having personally tortured prisoners of the Gestapo, primarily Jews and members of the French resistance, while stationed in Lyon under the collaborationist Vichy regime. After the war, United States intelligence services employed him for his anti-Marxist efforts and also aided his escape to Bolivia. The West German intelligence service later recruited him. Barbie is suspected of having had a role in the Bolivian coup d'etat orchestrated by Luis Garcia Meza in 1980. After the fall of the dictatorship, Barbie no longer had the protection of the government in La Paz and in 1983 was extradited to France where he was convicted of crimes against humanity. He died of cancer in prison on September 25th, 1991 at the age of 77. And I should say the True and On podcast also did a deep dive on Klaus Barbie. Um, I just can't remember what episode it was. I think it was in their, their series on what they called the Spider Network. And it was basically about how many Nazis had been taken out of you know, Germany after the war and either went to... To England or to the US or whatever other Western country that they went into the government of. But anyway, back to Shea. So on October 7th, 1967, an informant told the Bolivian Special Forces of the location of Guevara's guerrilla encampment. On the, on the morning of October 8th, they encircled the area with 180 soldiers and advanced into the ravine, triggering a battle where Guevara was wounded and then taken prisoner while leading a detachment with Simeon Cuba Sarabia. Uh, Shea's biographer, Anderson, again, reports a Bolivian sergeant's account that as the Bolivian rangers approached, a twice-wounded Guevara, his gun rendered useless, threw up his arms in surrender and shouted to the soldiers, quote, do not shoot. I am Che Guevara, and I am worth more to you alive than dead. So Guevara was tied up and taken to a dilapidated mud schoolhouse in the nearby village of La Higuera on the evening of October 8th. For the next half day, Guevara refused to be interrogated by Bolivian officers and only spoke quietly to Bolivian soldiers. One of those Bolivian soldiers, a helicopter pilot named Jaime Nino de Guzman, describes Shea as looking, quote, dreadful. According to Guzman, Guevara was shot through the right calf, his hair was matted with dirt, his clothes were shredded, and his feet were covered in rough leather sheets. Despite his haggard appearance, he recounts that Shea held his head high, looked everyone straight in the eyes, and asked only for something to smoke. 
De Guzman states that he took pity and gave him a small bag of tobacco for his pipe, and that Guevara then smiled and thanked him. Later on the night of uh, October 8th, Guevara, despite having his hands tied, kicked a Bolivian army officer named Captain Espinosa against the wall after the officer entered the schoolhouse and tried to snatch Guevara's pipe from his mouth as a souvenir while he was still smoking it. In another instance of defiance, Guevara spat in the face of a Bolivian rear admiral, um, Ugarteque, who attempted to question Guevara a few hours before his execution. The following morning on October 9th, Guevara asked to see the schoolteacher of the village, a 22-year-old woman named Julia Cortez. She later stated that she found Guevara to be an agreeable-looking man with a soft and ironic glance, and that during their conversation, she found herself unable to look him in the eye because his gaze was unbearable, piercing, and so tranquil. So even, like, he's shot, he's injured, he's wearing, like, scraps of clothing after having been in the mud for however long fighting a guerrilla war, and he's still just looking like a chad. <laughs> um, during their short conversation, Guevara pointed out to Cortez the poor condition of the schoolhouse, saying that it was, quote, anti-pedagogical to expect Campesino students to be educated there, while, quote, government officials drive Mercedes cars. Guevara said, that's what we are fighting against. Later that morning, on October 9th, Bolivian President René Barrientos ordered that Guevara be killed. The order was relayed to the unit holding Guevara by Felix Rodriguez, reportedly despite the United States government's desire that Guevara be taken to Panama for further interrogation. The executioner who volunteered to kill Guevara was Mario Terran, a, seven, a 27-year-old sergeant in the Bolivian army, who, while half-drunk, requested to shoot Guevara because three of his friends from B Company, all with the same first name of Mario, had been killed in a firefight several days earlier with Guevara's band of guerrillas. To make the bullet wounds appear consistent with the story that the Bolivian government planned to release him to release to the public, Felix Rodriguez ordered Turin not to shoot Guevara in the head, but to aim carefully to make it appear that Guevara had been killed in action during a clash with the Bolivian army. Gary Prado, the Bolivian captain in command of the army company that captured Guevara, said that the reasons Barrientos ordered the immediate execution of Guevara were so there could be no possibility for Guevara to escape from prison, and also so there could be no drama of a public trial where adverse publicity might happen. Do you, guys wanna really, do you guys really okay. quickly want to know what Che's last words were, though? Yeah, please do. So I'll, I'll read it in Spanish first, and then I'll read the, like, the English translation. Se que esta aquí para minimete, dispara corbata solo es mi mar e es un hombre. See, I, I'm not very good at reading Spanish. <laughs> The English uh, translation is, I know you are he here to kill me. Shoot, coward. You are only going to kill a man. Yeah, dude. Badass, even in the face of death. Well, it's like, in the, it, to me, there's something almost, uh, I don't want to say mythic, in like, but it's like there's something like, the, the, a moment like that only happens in like books, where like he knows mm -hmm. that even if he dies, like the movement isn't going to die. And, like, somehow he knew his memory was going to, like, leave a legacy and shit, which, you know, mega-based. I mean, that's the thing, right? You, you hope that someday you'll be fortunate enough to take part in some kind of, you know, revolutionary movement like this. Like, I don't know. I don't know the likelihood of that ever happening to any of us in our lifetimes. Seems like it's slim to none. But it's like, you do hope that if you're ever in that position where you get captured and you know you're going to be killed, that you would have the, the forethought and the bravery to say something like that knowing that it would be quoted after your death and knowing that, you know, you are just one person and that in the grand scheme of things that you will be more effective doing something like that and having the kind of legacy than anything you were actually doing at the time. 
Imagine the thud that happened when he hit the floor, though, because of his titanium balls. Yeah, we call the imprint uh, after the balls impacted the Gulf of Mexico today. <laughs> All right, so um, this is probably going to cover what you just said, but anyway, about 30 minutes before Guevara was killed, Felix Rodriguez attempted to question him about the whereabouts of other guerrilla fighters who were currently at large, but Guevara continued to remain silent. Rodriguez, assisted by a few Bolivian soldiers, helped Guevara to his feet and took him outside the hut to parade him before the other Bolivian soldiers, where he posed with Guevara for a photo opportunity, where one soldier took a photograph of Rodriguez and the other soldier standing alongside Guevara. Afterwards, Rodriguez told Guevara that he was going to be executed. A little later, Guevara was asked by one of the Bolivian soldiers guarding him if he was thinking about his own immortality. No, he replied. I'm thinking about the immortality of the revolution. A few minutes later, Sergeant Tehran entered the hut to shoot him, whereupon Guevara reportedly stood up and spoke to Tehran what were his last words. And again, you know, I know, you're come, I know you've come to kill me. Shoot, coward, you're only going to kill a man. Uh, Tehran hesitated, then pointed his self-loading M2 carbine at Guevara and opened fire, hitting him in the arms and legs. Then, as Guevara withered on the ground, apparently biting one of his wrists to avoid crying out, Tehran fired another burst, fatally wounding him in the chest. Guevara was pronounced dead at 1.10 p.m. local time, according to Rodriguez. In all, Guevara was shot nine times by Tehran. This included five times in his legs, once in the right shoulder and arm, and once in the chest and throat. Months earlier, during his last public de declaration to the Tricontinental Conference, Guevara had written his own epitaph, stating, quote, Wherever death may surprise us, let it be welcome, provided that this, our battle cry, may have reached some receptive ear, and another hand may be extended to wield our weapons. After his execution, Guevara's body was lashed to the landing skids of a helicopter and flown to nearby Vela Grande, where photographs were taken of him lying on a concrete slab in the laundry room of the Nuestra Señora de Malta. Several witnesses were called to confirm his identity, key amongst them the British journalist Richard Gott, the only witness to have ever met Guevara when he was alive. Put on display as hundreds of local residents filed past the body, Guevara's corpse was considered by many to represent a Christ-like visage, with some even surreptitiously clipping locks of his hair as divine relics. Such comparisons were further extended when English art critic John Berger, two weeks later upon seeing the post-mortem photographs, observed that they resembled two famous paintings, Rembrandt's The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp and Andrea Mantegna's Lamentation Over the Dead Christ. There were also four correspondents present when Guevara's body... I know, like, everybody is just like, this, this is Jesus right here, what do you guys do? If you guys, like, look up the picture really quick, like, you'll, you'll see it. it. I did see the picture of him on the slab, and it was like, it's very sad, but at the same time, like... I don't know. I could only I could only hope that I would look good, that good if I'm dead. Shay is Jesus and Fidel fucks. Like those are the two things I've learned in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Taking away the important points here. Shay is a sacrificial lamb and Fidel is a Chad. Uh, a declassified memorandum dated October 11th, 1967, to United States President Lyndon B. Johnson from his National Security Advisor Walt Whitman Rostow, called the decision to kill Guevara stupid but understandable from a Bolivian standpoint. After the execution, Rodriguez took several Guevara's personal items, including a watch which he continued to wear many years later, often showing them to reporters during the ensuing years. Today, some of these belongings, including his flashlight, are on display at the CIA. So that's nice. And then... that Shit like that just makes me so fucking angry. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I knew that last passage, just like recounting his death and everything, was going to be pretty depressing and angering. So the last thing I have here is um, a letter from Che Guevara to his children um, shortly before his death. I don't know exactly how long, but it was not long before. So he says, quote, To my children, 
Kirhildita, Alidita, Camilo, Celia, and Ernesto. If you read this letter one day, it will mean that I am no longer alive. You will hardly remember me, and the smallest among you will have entirely forgotten me. Your father was a man who acted as he thought best and who has been absolutely faithful to his convictions. Grow up into good revolutionaries. Study hard to master technology which gives you mastery over nature. Remember that it is the revolution which is important and that each of us, taken in isolation, is worth nothing. Above all, be sensitive in the deepest areas of yourselves to any injustice committed against whoever it may be anywhere in the world. This is the most beautiful quality in a revolution. Yours always, my children. I hope to see you again. A great big kiss and a big hug from Papa. So yeah, for the next episode, uh, I think we will just continue to go on with Cuba. Um, and I think the only other things that I would like to cover um, as far as the Cuban Revolution and Fidel was, like I said, accusations of racism and homophobia against Fidel Castro. I think we go into that a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit more about Shea's role in the Cuban Revolution since I feel like we kind of got into like how he joined Fidel in this episode. And we talked a little bit about like his one accomplishment, you know, capturing, uh, what was it, Santiago, Santiago de Clara. Um, but we didn't really talk about any other accomplishments of his in the revolution. And then we could talk about the Cuban, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the aftermath of the Cuban Revolution and sort of into the modern day Cuban politics and economy. But we can wrap it up tonight. Um, so, Daniel, you want to go ahead and plug your podcast again? Uh, yeah, um, I'm from the 262 Talks podcast. We're more of a political commentary group. We've been on a slight hiatus due to the fact that uh, I've been getting my ass absolutely reamed by Amazon. Uh, <laughs> but, Who would have um, expected yeah, that? We, we are starting up on our episodes again. Uh, I think we're recording tomorrow or the day after or something like that. So, you know, check us out on Spotify, uh, Facebook, and anywhere else, pretty much. We're, we're kind of everywhere. So, cool. I appreciate you guys inviting me on again. This is, uh, you know, Che is one of my personal heroes, and I appreciated being welcomed on again. Dude, I appreciate you coming back. It was great to have you on. And you always have a lot of good input, especially with this one. Like, you knew more about Shay going into this than I think, well, definitely than I did. So it was definitely helpful to have you on. And, um, yeah, appreciate you coming back, man. Anytime you want to come back. I appreciate it, man. Uh, Sterling, you want to go ahead and plug the Twitter? Yeah, and one thing that I don't think we really touched on, at least not directly, is that Shay was a good-ass-looking man. Like, just there's there's quite a few good looking communists in history and Shay was like top three, like high <laughs> yeah, high on the list, like good looking daddy material. Is I just want to make sure that makes it into the podcast. I mean, I didn't mention it because I just figured it was assumed. Like everybody knows this guy's a chat. Like look at this guy. Several times in Lee Anderson's book, it's literally like he asked people like certain things about Che, like girls, and they're like, "Oh no, everybody wanted to fuck him." <laughs> like, <laughs> everybody was attracted to him when he was like younger, even though he was like dirty and shit. I was gonna like, say, even with his being yeah. dirty, like that's really impressive. Wait, when he was like handsome, so like people were just like, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I have, it seems like he was pretty charismatic as well. Yeah, I have. He, he knew he knew a lot of poetry and shit. So like, Ooh. yeah. He would re- he would recite poetry verses to girls, he, you know, to, you know, get them, you know. <laughs> I have to assume that a certain someone, when they were having sex with Trotsky, was probably picturing Shay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you guys uh, fill in the blanks. <laughs> Can we close on this fun fact really quick? Yeah. Um, multiple times 
while Che was in uh, medical school, he would go to his uh, aunt's house, his aunt Beatrice's house. And while his aunt was in the other room, he would often have sex with his aunt's maid. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> just like behind her back and like just would go right back to whatever he was doing. Yeah. I did see, I think it was that interview with John Lee Anderson again, that he was mentioning how Shay was always like sexually voracious, like from a very young age. Like he, I think his first thing was he, I don't know if he successfully seduced his babysitter or something or like his, um, like the, whoever was like helping out in his house. Cause he came from a very um, well off family. It was, uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember this right. Cause there was like a poor class in, uh, where he grew up. I don't remember the name of that class, but it was like the higher up Argentinian girls were very conservative and they would wait till marriage and stuff like that. So for horny Argentinian boys, it would be very hard for them to lose their virginity and stuff. So mm-hmm. they would often end up hooking up with some of the lower class girls and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And his friends, like in the John Lean Anderson book, like his friends were like kind of like peeking around like and he was just having like an asthma attack the entire time (laughs) (laughs) of course so he would stop every few seconds to take a puff from his inhaler and then just keep going hit the inhaler hit a cigar (laughs) (laughs) which is honestly fucking epic chad moment yeah dude (laughs) but yes so the twitter turn leftist pod please come follow and shout out to all of our patreons uh, if you've been thinking about it, uh, you know, feel free, but no pressure. But you, if you do join our Patreon, like you are fucking awesome. And you have no idea how appreciative we really are. Like, we talk about it even off the podcast all the time about how badass all of these fucking Patreons are. We're just giving money to us to help support this shit for no fucking reason at all. Because we're really <laughs> like, we finally have put out one premium episode. I promise more coming. But like 90% of you have done this before we really even ever put one of them out. And also on the, yeah. t- on the t-shirts, uh, we've been kicking the cells up again. Definitely hit the link tree, go to the t-shirts, get the Reagan is Satan. As soon as we move a handful more of these, we'll start looking to get the trickle down economics t-shirts printed. So if you've been thinking about getting one, grab one. That way we can get on to the next t-shirt design, which will have a cameo uh, from Daniel's boss on the shirt. <laughs> yeah. I'll wear it to work. Act like I won't. I'll take a picture of me in my Amazon truck wearing it. When are you guys going to start making a, an OnlyFans version of the podcast? <laughs> have, have, have you not got the invite? Like, <laughs> Yo, that's what happens. In I was going to ask if you're staying on from the after show. This is where we start pulling, <laughs> pulling <Yeah>. dick out. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. We keep saying we want to make an OnlyFans for it, where we're yeah. all just ass naked, but we never address it. Like we <laughs> As if we're not all just butt naked. That would actually be great. Just be like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Like, do the Emperor's yeah, New Clothes by your life? Yeah. Um, all right, let me just uh, plug real quick. Um, for Jaron, his website is J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. And for Cosper, their Twitch is twitch.tv slash Cosper, C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. And for Ward, his Instagram is W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y and his backup millennial leftist. And then, yeah, just echoing what you said, Sterling, we cannot thank our Patreon subscribers enough. Like, seriously, just the fact that you guys 
stepped out and even subscribed to us before we even had a single premium episode. It really just means the world to us. And yeah, like Sterling said, we've been talking, we talk about it all the time, just amongst ourselves in our little group chat, how blown away we are that people are this generous and, you know, like our podcast enough to even do that at all. So we can't thank you enough. Um, and just again, our Patreons, David, Tristan, Devante, your mother, Charlotte, James, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bovey Fan 420, Aaron, Kyle, John Claude Manhands, Mail, Phil, Blackwater Janitor, and Jay Reese. We can't thank you guys enough, seriously. I'll say that for the rest of this podcast, as long as this goes on, we cannot thank you guys enough. And um, someday, once we have enough money, we will be taking a podcast trip to the DPRK. That's the only thing we can think of to do with the money. I can't think of anything else. I mean, maybe we'll donate to a socialist cause if somebody gives us a better suggestion. But so far, it's just a podcast trip to the DPRK. Yeah, you guys got to go to the Kremlin and see Lenin's body that's in state. That's probably on the way to DPRK, right? Uh, we can make I mean, a quick stop over. Direction you move <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. We'll gonna, wrap it up there. We're going to head towards the Get future, so, so it would be on the way. Yeah. I like it. All right, well, Daniel, thanks again for joining us. Everybody go check out the 262 Talks podcast. And uh, I think that's about it. Thank you, gentlemen. Right. Solidarity, comrades. Thank Thanks you. again, everyone, for listening. See you guys. Peace. Bye.